Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by The Honest Company, featuring safe products for your family and home. Purchase your first bundle by Mother's Day and receive a free gift worth $20. Go to honest.com and use the promo code CULTURE. That's honest.com and the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. And this is the Slate Culture Gabfest About Lightning edition. It's Wednesday, April 22nd, 2015. And on today's program, we're going to discuss About Ellie, a newly released in America film by Asghar Farhadi, the brilliant Iranian director. And then we'll talk about Gwyneth Paltrow, who has taken the SNAP challenge and attempted to live on the amount of money that food stamp recipients get for a week unsuccessfully. Is she an entitled snot or a valuable empathic spokeswoman? And then we'll talk about the movie trailer. We've seen two big ones in the past week. The trailer of the new Star Wars movie, the supposedly leaked trailer of Batman versus Superman, which looks so dark I can't even describe it in an appropriate tone of voice. And how this advertisement slash art form has evolved over the past few decades. And on today's Slate Plus segment... The historian sits down at his desk. He's trying to figure out what tense to use. He doesn't know whether to add those Ds to the ends of all his verbs. Should he or should he not use the historical present? We will discuss on Slate Plus. Joining me today from his Ghent studio is Slate's Stephen Metcalf. Hi, Steve. Hey, Julia. I hear that a lightning strike sapped your powers last night and turned me into the host. (laughs) It did. It transferred my lack of superpowers to you. I can't wait to see the trailer for Steve Mann versus Julia Woman. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Do I bleed all the fucking time? I mean, this is the second time I've been uh, hit by lightning, by the way. Look, am I in cahoots with the weather gods? We'll never know. Also joining us is Slate's Mike Pesca the host of The Gist, and regular contributor to Hang Up and Listen, and a general all-around uh, silver-tongued angel? I don't know. Anyway, Pesca's great. You guys know that. Dana Stevens is out this week, but we've got Mike here. Hi, Mike. Hello. We could recut Stevens' lightning experience to be comedy, and then when lightning strikes, all the way to Salisbury Hill, <laughs> or it could be horror, when lightning strikes, <laughs> <laughs> Or some some uh, thunderclap Newman song could play in the background, you know, to be really on the nose. I like it. It could also be like Freaky Wednesday here, where like I, I'm Steve in Julia's body, and anyway, this is going to be this is clearly going to be a jolly show. I can. Tell I know, already. Julia. I have to say, what are we going to do with all the long, uncomfortable pauses with Pesca as a guest on the show? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if uh, in the remake of Freaky Friday. Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan really did switch, and everything that Lindsay Lohan's been doing wrong is really just Jamie Lee reliving her youth. So first That's of all, concept. I love that idea. Let's make that movie as like a as like a mockumentary. Uh-huh. I think. Second of all, because Christopher Guest could direct it. That's yeah, Jamie Lee's husband. I didn't know Jamie Lee Curtis and Christopher Guest were married. Yeah, that might be like my new instant favorite celebrity couple. They probably have tall regal children. <laughs> I think, I think their kids have uh, regal names. I'll, I'll, I'll be looking this up. All right. We'll All right. circle back on that important matter. Uh, <laughs> but let's now start with About Ellie. Uh, we've all just watched this movie by Asghar Farhadi. It actually was made in 2009, but it's just getting released here in the United States. And thank goodness, I thought it was a terrific film. I will just show my cards right up front. The story chronicles a group of friends, middle-class Iranians, who are all taking a beach weekend together. A bunch of couples, some of their kids, and at the last minute, one of the children's school teachers has been invited. This is the titular Ellie, and she and her eventual disappearance unsettle the group and curdle the dynamic of what starts as an Iranian big chill type hilarity fest. So, Steve, tell me what you thought of this film. Well, let me begin by saying how high the bar was set for me before I saw it, which is that if someone were to say in the six to seven years of doing the show, is there one thing you would 
push universally upon listeners that we've uh, watched or listened to or read. It would be A Separation, the previous movie by this Iranian film director. And uh, so my expectations couldn't have been higher and they couldn't have been cleared more easily. I think this movie is just another masterpiece. And um, it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully acted. It's utterly gripping. And we can get more deeply into the reasons why it's a masterpiece. But I, I, I use that word without hesitation. I think this movie, and you said his earlier movie, and that's telling because as I was watching this movie, I said I, I, I was very much enjoying it and I did like it all the way through, but it seemed like a less confident movie and I was surprised that this was the follow-up to A Separation. And I swear I said to myself, if anything, it seems like this was an earlier movie and then he refines his craft. And in fact, that is the time frame. He made this movie before A Separation. And it doesn't surprise me if we get into some plot details why that is. A Separation is a little bit more universal and... And I think we understood the anthropological role of that movie. So we watched that movie. We realized we weren't watching our society, but it was interesting and quite apparent in the ways we weren't watching our society. With this movie, with About Ellie, there are elements, and we should say it involves a couple of calamities, one almost, one actual. And so much of the tension is specific to either Iran or a country where honor is really important, where there's little difference between law and morality. And so Ellie disappears and it's wrapped up. Some of the tension is wrapped up with honor, some of the complications. And I wasn't really getting that at first. And then it dawned on me. And so I was experiencing the movie in a very different way than an Iranian viewer would experience. But it was... um, It was good. It was the sort of thing where I said, ah, now I get it. Now I understand what the stakes are. Yeah, that's it. At first I was like, wait, why is this so complicated? What are the layered reasons that this is so complicated other than the fact that a main character has disappeared? Then it began to dawn on me and then I began to appreciate it. I think that's really interesting, the question of who the intended audience is. And I think Farhadi is making movies both for an audience within Iran and for an international audience about Iran and it seems clear from his films that, you know, his views of what would make sense for the future of Iranian society do not necessarily square with those of the current political leadership of Iran. But I sort of liked that this movie plunged me in to the culture and didn't necessarily as carefully kind of explain and situate. And I liked the disorienting effect of having the whole first half of the movie feel like it could be any American beach weekend, a bunch of yuppies packed into a car, there's a Louis Vuitton bag in the back, you know, they have money, they've got spare time, woohoo, road trip, you know, it feels very comfortable and low key. And the friends are sort of enviably fun, right? They show up, the house they thought they were going to get turns out to be booked. So they're like, oh, you've got this rumble down, ramshackle old place down by the beach. The beach is dangerous. Ah, we'll take it. You know, never mind. There's like broken glass everywhere. They've got kids running around. But they just seem like, sure, let's light some fires and, you know, bring out the hookah and grill some meat and just chill out. They seem, it seems like a totally universal, comfortable, relaxed, kind of socially loose and free environment. And then, you know, I think the movie is about the the illusion of that environment. And in fact, you slowly realize how constricted, how constrained, how tense the society is under that. And, I, and you know, one recurring motif through the film, the, actually the opening credits of the film seem to take place, I think, from the interior of a voting box. You're seeing ballots kind of stuffed through a slot as the film credits roll. And then the shot kind of turns into the road trip car heading out of a tunnel. And if this film never circles back to it, there's no explicit reference to governments or elections. But there are a few occasions on which the group kind of votes about what they're going to do. Should we stay in the ramshackle shack? How should we behave with regard to this appearance? And I think the kind of illusion of democracy, the illusion of freedom, and the tensions around that are what this film is actually really about. Yeah, I completely, Julie, I completely agree. I think you've nailed it. I mean, the movie is quite pointedly about a people living halfway between a medieval honor society and Joey and Chandler, right? And the big <laughs> chill, right? I mean, there's the world of cell phones and divorce and law students, and then there's a world of total deep religious fundamentalism. But what I think is so interesting about his films is that, yes, exactly, they're made to reflect back to an Iranian audience who they are, what they're going through collectively right now as a culture. They're made for a global audience in that they're clearly works of global cinema. I mean, they're works of art that deserve to be 
you know, universally consumed. But what makes that so compelling is that it, what struck me in this film that didn't strike me about the previously released film, The Separation, is that this one, it reminded me of the great French movies of the 50s and 60s, and it hit me why. It's not only that they're beautiful to look at and they have uh, beautiful actresses that rival Bardot and being just gripping to stare at, it's also that those movies were made at a time when post-war Europe was trying to figure out who they were, that they'd just gone through a long period of austerity and gerontocracy. I mean, they were ruled by incredibly old war heroes. And a younger generation was finally saying, you know, we, wanna, we want a vitality and an ability to live in a modern and present way. And there was an energy that you only get from breaking loose from that. And that's what made those French films both so much about the French situation of the 60s, but also just universally gripping movies. And so in, even though you would think watching an Iranian kind of tragedy of manners would be uninviting to an American, to my mind it's quite the opposite. The questions that are being worked through in these films about Iranian society are so primal and so fundamental and inexorable, they can't be avoided, that what comes through is totally human and, and just uh, gripping to anybody. I mean, I, the people don't go and see all of his movies that that would be a crime, I think. <laughs> I suspect this crime will be committed, Steve. I don't think everyone in this country will go see this movie, although as many of them as possible should, I agree. Though it's just as as we're on the subject of mid-century European cinema, the obvious forebear here is Antonioni's La Ventura, which is also a movie where a bunch of people are partying by a beach and then a woman mysteriously disappears. Although, as I recall, what happens afterward is a lot of like beautiful people roaming around rocky cliffscapes and like staring into the distance as their wind blows their hair. I remember finding that movie mystifying and somewhat irritating when I saw it in college. And I went back and read the Wikipedia plot summary last night, which it turns out there's a lot that happens after they stare into the horizon. And anyway, I highly recommend that plot summary to anybody who wants to be amused by the, the amusingness of plots in uh, Italian mid-century cinema. But I feel like this movie had some of that kind of using the landscape to convey the existential mystery and despair and just gorgeous cinematography of that film, but a much more kind of conventional story structure in a way, a really sophisticated and well-told one, but not one that is in any way kind of difficult or confusing or avant-garde. Like it's a, it's a very traditional movie. And I think this was true of A Separation too. Like these are traditional and classic enough in their storytelling structure that I think they can be appreciated universally. It reminded me, I thought of Eric Romer, I th it was sort of a nice uh, break from American depictions of middle class, especially before the bad stuff starts to happen in this movie, where we don't have to take it with a few grains of condemnation. It was a, an observation, a celebration of these people in the middle, maybe upper middle class. The, the, there was no Bombackian bombast where we had to, uh, you know, have a dig at any of these people just for their lifestyles. We were observing them and we were in their world. And that was a nice break. One, one thing I want to ask both of you, during the movie, did you have this thought? We can't drop bombs on these people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, within 30 seconds, yeah. the beginning of it. It's yeah, really no, it, humanizing. It, it, yeah. it puts into perspective the rec you know, orientalism necessary to glibly call for bombing this country. I mean, you have to think of them as so distant and so inhuman and so other and so completely different from us to just glibly float it in the New York Times that the solution to a foreign policy challenge is to bomb the crap out of these people. All right. Well, I think we universally agree that you should go see About Ellie, especially if you've been thinking since we talked about a separation. You know, I never went and saw that good Iranian movie they talked about. What was it called? Who was the guy? Take this chance. Go see About Ellie. Oscar Farhadi rolling out in American theaters six years after it was originally made. It's really an extraordinary film. All right. Since I'm hosting this week with my new lightning bestowed powers and Steve's lack thereof, zap, Pesca, I have made you the ad reader. Who's, a, who's our sponsor today? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Honest Company. Honest.com helps us take care of our kids and our homes with responsible and safe household products that you could trust. Take, for instance, Honest Diapers, ultra soft, super absorbent, cute, and they're made of plant-based and sustainable materials. Purchase your first bundle before Mother's Day, and they'll send you a free aromatic soy candle worth $20. Here 
here's the hint, dads. Do not buy your wife diapers for Mother's Day, but maybe repurpose the aromatic candle. Anyway, you could go to Honest.com and use the promo code CULTURE at checkout, and you'll get one of Honest's most popular items free. That's Honest.com and use the promo code CULTURE. Zap. Thanks, Mike. All right. On to our next topic. We like to talk about Gwyneth Paltrow on this show approximately every eight to ten months. And so we are up again. The goop princess, the blonde titan of American cinema, the lifestyle guru who everybody loves to hate. Gwyneth Paltrow, a few weeks ago, decided to take what's known as the snap challenge. This is something that food policy advocates and poverty and homelessness policy advocates often do and talk about. It's where people who can afford better attempt to live on the amount of money that food stamp recipients have for a given period of time, a month, a week. So Gwyneth was challenged by celebrity chef Mario Batali to take this challenge. She did. She tweeted a picture of her foodstuffs that her $29 purchased. There were a lot of limes and cilantro and avocados in there, which generated some concern and derision from her Twitter followers. And then she tried to do this and wrote about the results and was met with mild praise and much opprobrium. I won't reveal what the results are. Pesca, do the honors. What happened when Gwyneth Paltrow attempted to take the snap challenge? She got hungry. It didn't work. <laughs> she she wound up a little peckish. And, say, and because she attempted to buy fresh vegetables, I guess that was her downfall. She could not meet the requirements. The Even Gwyneth Paltrow's presumably low daily caloric requirements could not be met. Yes, she apparently failed out after four days, had some vegetables and chicken. It's possible that she admitted this because she was spotted at a restaurant eating, although her team is putting out very much information about the time frame. She also confesses to having eaten a half a bag of licorice. Upon seeing these results, Gwyneth gave herself a C minus, which I thought was a pretty generous grade for utterly failing to, to live to abide by the challenge. But it is two grades lower than she ever received in any of her expensive private schools. Steve... Should we condemn or praise Gwyneth Paltrow for attempting to understand what it is like to eat and feed yourself as a poor person in this country? Oh, not at all for attempting to do it. Not at all. I think the idea that there's a counter narrative to the conservative one about how there's a you know luxurious overindulgence in seafood and gambling on a food stamp allotment, that needs to be refuted on its face, and the more well-known people, famous people, who uh, call attention to how hard it is to live on, on these really meager amounts of money, especially if you're supporting a family, the better. I, I think you can do a little bit of both. I think it's good that she tried to publicize the difficulties of, uh, of the SNAP program, of living off of government assistance. Did she expose once again to the world her Gwynethness, her platonic essence of Gwynethness? Absolutely. But the risibility of it only makes it that much more viral and therefore that much more uh, uh, valuable publicity for the real substance of the matter, which is uh, how um, miserly we are um, and how moralizing we are about poor people who need help in this country. All right. So you take the any publicity is good publicity approach, Steve, and that may be the case. But Pesca, what did you think? Did her failure to complete this challenge properly actually advance the cause? Or can, can you hate empathize with something? Uh, I think that, of course, she failed because no one who actually has to live on food stamps goes at it like Gwyneth would. And so even if we give her credit for bringing publicity, and that is just the lowest rung of credit that we can give, she raised awareness. I mean, do you think a lot of people on the Gloop ba blog, Gloop? No, it's Goop. Goop? <laughs> Gloop, is, Gloop is the alternate world version yeah. in the Willy Wonka universe. <laughs> yeah. Do you think a lot of the people uh, on a lot of the people gooping it up didn't know about it? And now, let's say the answer was yes. Now that they do, so what? In fact, I think she obviously does it for a number of psychological reasons, but one is to burnish her brand and to cover herself and to fend off the criticism about how expensive everything else she recommends on the Goop Gloop blog is. But really, it's an, I think it's an insult. I think it's mostly an insult to people who actually do live on this challenge, or it's not a challenge, it's called life to the people who have to do it, and they have skills, the skills that it takes to be a poor person, and among those skills are not buying a uh, ridiculous amount of limes as she did like you just can't do that so she should have i mean perhaps she should have done it by buying the kind of food that you can afford 
with um, food stamps. If you well, you can buy lots of different kinds of food with food stamps. It's just that your food stamps don't go very far. And if she did that, she'd be eating a lot of food that she probably would turn her nose up at. And so maybe that that would be an interesting result to publicize. You know, I had to live on these overly caloric packing calories, what I would normally call empty calories, just to uh, uh, make my food stamps stretch. And she wasn't willing or able to do that. Yeah, but I'm I'm saying that we can der- we can both make fun of Gwyneth for doing this and derive social value from her failed attempt. And let me be precise about what the social value is. It's not only that she publicizes the meagerness of the program. It's not only that she fails on it. I mean, the point of the exercise is to fail in some ways. It's not only that she buyed you know bought a rich person's bird food uh, and and try as she might couldn't pop, pop her way out of her you know, giant bubble, bu- bubble of super privilege. And secondly, the publicity value goes way beyond the Goop Gloop website. It's the fact that Slate writes about it in an extremely, I think, intelligent uh, and nuanced way that all kinds of secondary outlets write about it, whether they're making fun of her or not. Sunlight in that regard is, is of intrinsic value, but it's also demonstrating how stupid and remote and hermetically sealed off from real life the super rich really are, and that's the origin of the whole fucking problem, right? I mean, if, if we didn't have, if we didn't allow this kind of ri- ridiculously rarefied, you know, alternate universe for the super rich to live in, we also wouldn't have people, like, scraping by on super processed industrial food that they can barely afford and doesn't even nourish them. These two things are related to one another. So what social value we can derive from the stupidity of Gwyneth doesn't in any way mitigate the stupidity. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, my take on this, as is my take on many things, is that Gwyneth would have benefited greatly from an editor. The problem here is not that she attempted this. The problem is that she attempted it so flipply. Like she was kind of like, I'll give this a shot for four days, but eh, whatever. I got to eat a a different meal. I'm going to try some licorice. Who cares? Let me just go to the supermarket and get what I'd normally get. You know, she got criticized for both ends. And I think, you know, in part, one point of the Snap Challenge is to fail and to kind of be like, whoa, it's impossible to eat any, you know, anything normal on this pittance. But she also got criticized for not trying, for not actually talking to some people who do this and figuring out how they make ends meet and what the options are, Do you know, checking out some tip sites that talk about how people do manage to make ends meet and, and make this amount of money stretch. So in some ways, the point of the SNAP challenge is to fail it and show that it's an impossibility. But other critics took that as a mark of disrespect for the people who do succeed and survive on this amount of money, not easily at all, not without great attendant stress and trouble through being strategic and intelligent about how they deploy these funds. And so there was just a kind of flip disregard for the work that it takes to make this pittance livable that I think was off-putting. And then I also think just, you know, giving yourself a C- minus for completely failing is bad. The optics of being able to live through, like, a gajillion juice cleanses a month, like, she's clearly very good at disciplined eating. So the notion that this is the one that she fails is just somewhat appalling. And she doesn't have the grace or sense to, like, acknowledge that or explain why this was harder than that or, you know, what the mental difference was between trying to stick to this ascetic diet as opposed to the ascetic diets she seems to be on the rest of her life. You know, and I also think then she, in her explanation of the policies around this, she goes off into some like long-winded thing about how wage equality is what really would solve this problem, which women and men should earn an equal wage. That is true. But it is not the most directly related to the issue of food stamps. That That would be fracking. (laughs) <laughs> so you know she just like she just gets uh, points for effort but just th- there's like a flip disregard in the execution here that i do find off-putting i really think if i were a person who had to live on food stamps i'd be appalled by this just as i would be appalled by the politicians bill de blasio many other politicians who spend the night in public housing that's another stunt this is poverty tourism or poverty experiential tourism or you know poverty stunt tourism and if we say that there's any credit, oh, she brought attention to the issue, it is just the attention was going to be brought, and what does the attention do? I mean, no, that's uh, right, but that's just that's just on a, as a purely factual matter, Mike. That's just wrong. I mean, I've read more about the specifics of this program in the last 24 hours, 
with Gwyneth as the excuse, and maybe that's shame on me, but I can't imagine I'm alone in this. You know, that I had previously, and, and believe me, like, I'm willing to put Gwyneth Paltrow through whatever rhetorical ringer you guys want to construct, I, and I'm happy to, do, you know, do the churning along with you, but that's different from whether, in general, you know, people who are in the public eye, and to an extent also politicians, should try to, you know, I mean, empathy, it's not as if, it's not because someone does a stunt somewhere that doesn't make empathy impossible for everybody else. I think that means like cynicism has just gone universal. My that. problem is that the amount of whatever good resulted from this, I think that 90 something percent went to Gwyneth or she, you know, has now a higher regard for herself and some single digit percent went to actually helping someone who actually needs the help. I would say, it's just a theory, but if we go by the social policy that was driven by things like hashtags or celebrity stunts, we usually get bad policy out of that. You know, bring back our girls or not just Gwyneth, but Ben Affleck and everyone else doing the Snap Challenge. And if we craft our social policy based on even good journalism, like a series of seven articles in the in 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 on the front page of the Washington Post or the the Charleston Gazette or whichever paper just won the Pulitzer, we usually get better policy. And so I don't think, I think this has almost no effect. And even if you've read about it a little bit because of Gwyneth, I don't think that's going to change anything. And I think most of the reading is of the, it's it's a little bit like when um, Angelina Jolie did her double mastectomy and great for her, but studies showed that the vast majority of women misunder, or the vast majority of readers misunderstood what was at stake there. And there was this huge uptick in people talking about it. And the doctors who would normally recommend this to the proper people were still doing that. So it didn't change anything and good for Angelina Jolie, but there were actual studies that show how the public doesn't understand what this means. Mike, you and I can agree that we'd both rather live in a country run by a junta of great technocrats. Okay. <laughs> But failing that, we have to counter in this specific... <laughs> She's the second best. <laughs> Glupocrats are the second best. <laughs> the Glupocrats. But in, in this universe, you know, there are specific right-wing narratives that need to be countered. And there's a, an entire publicity machine now up and revving about how poor people on food stamps are taking advantage of the program to gamble and eat filet mignon. It's like the welfare queen yes, meme is being trotted out in slightly new garb, and to the extent that anybody read what Slate wrote about the Gwyneth Paltrow experiment, a net social benefit has happened. I also think, you know, when you talk about poverty tourism, I think I tend to be more on Steve's side than yours, Mike, because I think there's the publicity exercise, which we can debate the utility of, but I do think there is some awareness raised and that that maybe is in low double digits, not single digits in terms of the value of these things. But I also think there's an empathy exercise. I mean, for Gwyneth, there's a brand burnishing exercise for the people who do this publicly. But I was curious reading about this to think about what it would mean to do this for myself. And maybe that's a entitled and privileged and stupid thing to wonder about. But I think it would be informative and interesting to try to adhere to this diet. And, you know, I wish Gwyneth had better expressed what she learned or had seemed interested in learning anything at all, apart from a preconceived idea of like, well, it's impossible. Can't get enough limes, you know. Um, but like reading it, I wondered, huh, you know, I make my morning coffee at home. My coffee beans cost uh, like a big chunk of the weekly amount. Like, so would I not caffeinate? Like, that's dumb and stupid and maybe it makes me seem out of touch and privileged. But you, if you start to wonder about the practicalities of how you would do this, you learn things, I think. And, and you do create empathy that might result in advocating for a more progressive tax code or just Gwyneth giving a huge truck of money to some appropriate charity or any of the potential options in between. So I, I tend to be more sympathetic to these exercises in general and stipulate that Gwyneth simply executed this one poorly. All right. Well, that was Gwyneth Paltrow attempting the SNAP food stamp challenge. Please come to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest to tell us what you think of Gwyneth's efforts here, of the efforts of Cory Booker and others who've attempted this, whether you've ever had to live on food stamps, and if so, what that was like, whether you've ever attempted the challenge for yourself. 
Uh, and if so, what you learned and whether you think it was worthwhile as an exercise. All right. On to our next topic. In a world where I cannot stand to make another in a world joke. What else do we got here? We're talking about trailers. Doctors are standing by if you are up to the horror of tarantula. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. Casca, <laughs> is your like eighth job this week? Can you just recut all the trailers of <laughs> modern movies? Yeah. You're on Hang Up. You're on Culture Fest. You're doing the gist. He's spinning plates. He also was making gestures in the last segment. He was like mapping out the coverage of poverty in the sky with a series of elaborate hand gestures that looked kind of like Tai Chi and or he was imploring the gods to I was, strike him with lightning. I was reaching for the cheaper limes on the top shelf. <laughs> it was very acrobatic in here. I was inspired and impressed. Anyway. Um, we do not yet have the trailer materials to cut Pesca Action Podcaster forthcoming summer 2016. All right. So the occasion for this conversation is that the past week has brought us a spate of high-profile trailers. First, there was the J.J. Abrams-directed trailer to the J.J. Abrams-directed new Star Wars film, The Force Awakens. Chewie, we're home. Seems like the Force has been awakening for ages now, but it's still rubbing the sleep out of its eyes. And people were pretty stoked on this trailer and various mashups of this trailer. And the force presses the snooze button <laughs> 10 times. <laughs> exactly. You know, and people very much admired this seemingly as a piece of trailer craft. Perhaps creating an ad for an incredibly desired product is not the uh, staunchest test of trailer making, but still this was regarded as a good trailer. And then we also had a leaked, or was it just released? Who knows? Trailer to Batman versus Superman, which seems to be a very dark film by Zack Snyder, the, you know, bloody dark filter 300 guy, which seems to feature Superman as sort of a godhead Christ figure and Ben Affleck as a very grumpy Batman who seems like maybe he's turned into a bad guy. Let's listen to a little clip from this one. Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world should be a figure of controversy. We, as a population on this planet, have been looking for a savior. savior. We're talking about a alien whose very existence they are not telling us the truth. challenges our own sense of priority in the universe. Human beings have a horrible track record of Tragic. following people of great power. power corrupts. And absolute power Terror. corrupts absolutely. Chaos. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right we thing. We know better now, don't we? Devils don't come from hell beneath us. They brought their war here. No, they come from the sky. The world has been so caught up with what he can do that no one has asked what he should do. <laughs> That's how it starts. I do like the array of voice talent in that trailer. I wonder what Holly Hunter's going to be doing in this movie. You feel like you can hear her uh, trademark zhuzhi growl in there. Mike Pesca, in this day and age... What makes a good trailer? Is it even possible to make one? It seems that sometimes they have to answer a question. Oftentimes, if it's a highly anticipated movie, they're planting a question. I think the Superman and Batman, or Superman v. Batman, which was, you know, right, the, the case in between Plessy v. Ferguson and Brown v. Board, I think that does one set of things, which is if all you knew about it was the high concept, you'd be saying, well, of course Superman's going to win, right? So this tells you a little bit more about the background of the movie, the world that it's going to be uh, composed in. I mean, pre-trailer, I think people might be excited. Post-trailer, you're saying, oh, is Superman bad? Oh, can Batman, is Batman doing something besides just clashing at him with his utility belt versus the other guy's Krypton or Yellow Sun? derived powers. I think the Star Wars trailer is a little different, and the Star Wars trailer is just showing you some images, and then at the very end, it's Chewie, it's Han, that's all we really needed. I think the Star Wars trailer is, if anything, a little bit overly praised. I mean, what did it really give us? It echoed the first Star Wars trailer that was put out there where we saw, cool, Millennium Falcon's gonna be in it, we knew that. Uh, X-Wing fighters are gonna be in it, we knew that. They got a weird soccer ball looking droid. We knew that. You got a uh, black guy, I'm not going to say African-American, possibly an African Tatooine, in a, uh, a stormtrooper suit. We knew that. So it's mostly Han and Chewie at the end, and it gets the uh, Star Wars fans crazy. They're doing two different things, though. 
Steve, do you watch trailers? Do they even have trailers up in Ghent? And if so, what kinds do you like? <laughs> we have a couple of lovable local moppets come out on stage and, and act what they think the movie is going to be. There's live piano, too, right? Yeah, with live Exactly, exactly. The fingers bouncing off the, um, the keys. But anyway, um, Mike, I think you're right. Like, so for example, with Batman versus Superman or whatever the movie's called, you know, they, they, they had a very specific focus group problem on their hands, which is that Superman is Superman. He's this <laughs> invulnerable, otherworldly being with the ultimate superpowers, and Batman's just a guy in a suit with some technology. So they turn Superman's, cannily, I think, they turn Superman's ultra strength into a vulnerability. It's made him, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, like his vulnerability now is, in fact, this in, invulnerability, and that's clever. That said, like, the amazing thing to me about trailers is they hit this magic sweet spot. Um, they manage to be both totally incoherent and way too revealing. And my question is always, and they seem to, they do, to their credit, seem to be getting away from that a little bit. People have finally complained, but it's been a decade that they've been this way. They essentially show you the entire film with all of its major beats, minus the final, very final uh, revelation. And I've never understood why anyone perceives this to be a tease to go see a film. Uh, It just seems like sort of spoiler after spoiler. The second issue that I thought was really interesting is The Atlantic uh, did a piece on trailers and the history of trailers. They have not gotten longer, by and large. They're perceived as annoying for a bunch of, you know, historically contingent reasons. But I think as good as The Atlantic piece was, I don't think that they put their finger on why they're now perceived as so completely annoying. Um, and I think it's because the movies are, are more formulaic and less intrinsically interesting and so totally reliant on what, what are called pre-sold elements, you know, effectively the recognizable franchise or comic book characters and the stars. Um, and that puts on the trailer a tremendous burden of making them seem distinctive or new, which they aren't. And so what they have to do is inflate the trailers with an enormous amount of gas. And it's finally going to change now that it's a universal parody. It's actually now a bad as Julia was pointing out, a stale joke, the inner world joke, is now, you know, uh, in the repertoire of every, you know, uh, small market oh, shop job. So it'll change, but it just, it does, just, just, it does seem to me that bombast is the, you know, compensation for lack of originality. Steve, I should have known you'd have a declinist narrative of movie trailers. Come on. Movie trailers have gotten, like, much better in the last three decades, I think, generally. I think there are many movie trailers that make bad mistakes and that ruin the experience of watching the subsequent movie. I mean, it's, you know, it's similar in relationship to the accusation on the web of clickbait headlines, right? Are you promising the thing that the film actually delivers? And are you hiding enough of the thing that it will eventually deliver such that there is added satisfaction to be derived from consuming the full thing as opposed to just the tease for it? So the headline in the link delivers the reading experience of the full article. You want that to be bigger, more satisfying, add more nuance, be valuable, but have some direct correlation to the the tease you use to get there. Same with the movie trailer. The ideal movie trailer whets your appetite but doesn't deliver the full meal. And I think there is, because of the bombast factor and and the competition to get butts in seats immediately before your film is declared a flop, a tendency towards overinflation and a tendency towards showing a little more leg so that people are like, oh, I want to see that on opening night. That looks exciting. And I think that happened as we discussed in our Fast and Furious 7 segment or Furious 7. God damn it. Will we ever get the titles of these movies right? Probably not. Furious it's 7. Call different things in different <laughs> markets. Don't beat yourself up. The car movie. Yeah. The car movie that Steve couldn't bring himself to watch. That movie had a couple stunning stunt set pieces in it and a couple more boring, normal set pieces in it. And the two stunning ones involved airborne cars, like airborne more than 20 feet jumping over a bridge, but airborne like at least 250 feet in the air and sometimes much higher. And it included both of the airborne car stunts, both the coming out of the cargo plane and the going from skyscraper to skyscraper. And that was a mistake in retrospect, I think. They should have included only one of the airborne stunts so that you could have been wowed by the second airborne stunt in the film. Yeah, it seems to have hurt box office sales. Well, 
but I do think it hurts. I mean, that movie is not as universally praised and and like the word of mouth, that feeling of like, oh, that that thing over delivered. Right. Like you do want that feeling to get a movie to carry forward. And it doesn't always matter, but I think it does. Well, I think if I see one more movie with uh, fi- uh, uh, adorable five or six year old kids donning dark sunglasses and walking slowly as bad to the bone plays in the background, well, I'll be happy. I will be happy because I'm an American <laughs> moviegoer. I think that trailers is a little like audio. There are there are limiters to it. No matter how bad a movie is, a trailer will never be terrible, except as trailers are experienced, which is in a movie theater, backed, especially if you go to one of these genre films, back to back to back to back to back, and they're all the same, and the yes. stakes are always the end of the world. Like, there's no movie yes. where it's not the end of the world, and we always have the big reveal of the huge monster that's going to kill us, be it, be it Pacific Rim, be it Godzilla, be it any of these things, and there's almost always that sound in it, which is they've found out how to make the really low rumbly bass sound. (laughs) (laughs) It's in all the trailers, a transformer or whatever. And the sameness of it, I mean, God, if if I, I, the number one reason I want to move out of Manhattan is just to be able to go to a movie theater a minute and a half before the show starts and still get a seat. Because in Manhattan, you got to go 20 minutes beforehand. You have to inundate yourself with this, these crappy action trailers that are the same as the next one. Oh my God. Can I, can I counterpoint to that? I love watching trailers in a movie theater, in fact. And I think that the dawn of releasing trailers online has somewhat ruined this experience because if you follow these things you and you're a fanboy or girl, sometimes you see the trailer as soon as it comes out. I prefer to not watch trailers online. Sorry, browbeat folks who post interesting trailers. And wait and see them in the movie theater. And I love seeing them all in a row. I know that at this point it's basically a 25-minute full length of a sitcom chunk of my life that I'm <laughs> devoting to being advertised to. But I can't can't explain it. I find it so enjoyable. I find like, I find, (laughs) I find it interesting to see what films they package in front of the film you're seeing. I like to look at the little rating thing to say like what the rating was caused by. They have the little language about was was it adult situations or strong language. Do you bet on it? Do you gamble? (laughs) I had inappropriate for children. I had scenes of uh, animals in distress. I just enjoy it. I sort of enjoy watching the conventions on spool in a row and then admire very within that theme. It's like watching a set of master poets all produce sestinas and you uh-huh. see like what oh are they doing God. within the form. <laughs> I just really like it. And now that I'm a busy working mom type, I often, uh-huh. yeah, first of all, it's possible, Mike, if you go see movies by yourself on weeknights, you totally can just show up 25 minutes after showtime. And <laughs> With a 40 in a brown bag. That's my other movie watching tip. Yes. movie. I will do a whole separate video about how to watch a movie like Julia Turner. Bring a beer, maybe some takeout and go by yourself. 25 minutes after showtime and you don't have to watch any of that and sometimes that is necessary the way my life is currently constructed but I rue it I miss just showing up to be advertised to I don't know why but I love this as a form of advertising I think I think it's interesting to see how people pitch their stories to us they're trying to tell entertaining stories sometimes they pitch the, the high concept the surprisingness you know sometimes they just pitch the pure visual world like another trailer that's actually quite impressive that's out right now is the trailer for the Mad Max remake with Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy and a bunch of crazy looking people in the desert and that's a that's a very vivid crazy looking movie that's a, that's a great trailer I mean I, I admit that that is a great trailer but the, of of you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen three or four, you know, pretty wide-release films. Of all the trailers that have been shoved down my, you know, ocular throat, the only one that made any impression on me at all is, is the Mad Max one. Julia, let me let me try to let me try to characterize your argument by way of analogy. Basically, what you're saying—I <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> but basically, what you're saying is, Steve, you're so ridiculous. McDonald's is doing better than ever. I mean, I go there, and it's the same. It's the same Big Mac and the fries are just as good and I love getting a shake and it's so delicious. My argument isn't that, you know, there's something in, like aesthetically, intrinsically unsatisfying about a movie trailer nor McDonald's. My argument is that the business model is failing and the business itself is, is, is acknowledging that by changing the format. All I did was supply a reason for it failing, which is that in, in, in place of originality, there's just more gas. Just inflate it with more gas. And Mike put his finger on it exactly. All the movies basically are framed around the same plot. Some gigantic, incredible, either technological or environmental monstrosity is about to destroy all of us. 
some you know equally countervailing forces necessary to stop it. Will it stop it? Guess what? It will. <laughs> and so you know they you know they need Dolby you know Pesca on Dolby rumbling in the background to keep all the Thank you. Uh, even slightly uh, amusing. I think one thing should be pointed out also is that you know trailers do represent uh, a bit of a historic change in the movie business, which is that the previous business model prior to the wide-release blockbuster really was word-of-mouth and critic-reliant. It just was, as a matter of historical fact, this is not a golden age argument. It is just an absolute empirical observation that they released movies to the public in a very careful, platformed, and slow way in order to build word-of-mouth, and, and they were very dependent upon the critics and what the critics uh, said that first Friday night. They're no longer dependent upon the stall with wide release. It doesn't matter at all. What, what matters is stimulating the anticipatory glands of the mass audience via the trailer and getting as many people to show up on Friday night, as I've said a million times on this show. It really is that opening night that makes or breaks the movie. And so the trailer, you know, is both this boring, unoriginal, repetitive form, basically, but also it's upon which the entire business model rests. Well, all right. To support my argument that the trailers have gotten better and are more sophisticated deliverers of both uh, advertising persuasion and aesthetic pleasure, I think we should play some clips of older trailers before we close this segment out. And, you know, one trailer I was thinking about when I made that statement is the trailer for E.T., which does one thing much better than modern trailers. It fails to show you E.T. You only ever see his shadow the eventually you see the tip of his glowing finger, but you never see his face or its funny shape or his funny wrinkled body or any of the things that immediately you call to mind when you think of the movie E.T., you you don't get the visual. And if you think about the classic poster, you don't really either, right? It's the guy in the bike and the, the kid in the bike in the sky. But the the description is like just so deeply retro and makes you realize how much the form has changed in the last what is it, 35 years? So let's listen to a little bit of the audio from this trailer, which I will note in advance, I believe promises both wonder and wonderment. <laughs> we will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship, I'm keeping him. The secret. The love. The warning. The signal. The mystery. The danger. The intrusion. The wonderment. The enchantment. The hope, the connection, has been made. <laughs> Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T., the extraterrestrial. Uh, so many emotion nouns. You will have so many emotion nouns. I guess I was wrong about Wonder and Wonderman, but th think of all the emotion nouns you will experience. The confusion. The puzzlement. The pacing. <laughs> anyway, I mean, there's a definite charm to that. And, and I feel like hearing that style of voiceover in combination with the John Williams score almost makes it sound like a movie that could have come out in the 1940s, like the kind of retro quality of it is so striking. You know, it's charming, but as a, like pleasure delivery vehicle, it's a little, it's like not as sophisticated as our, our modern roaming machines. I can't do the noise, Pesca. I, t I kind of did soil samples over the last 35 years. So I watched that. Then I went back and I looked at the trailer for the movie Sneakers, Steve, you'll be glad to know, which is like a goofy sales job. And I think points up what we should really value in trailers, which is the ability of a trailer to pitch an unconventional movie in a sophisticated and persuasive way. I would say the Sneakers trailer is not worth listening to and utterly fails uh, in this task. Yeah. Um, I went and looked at the trailer for Clueless, which begins to feel closer to what a modern trailer looks like. I went and watched the trailer for Blue Crush, which came out in like the early, I think around 2000. Soak Up the Sun was in that? What was the what was the song? I forget the song, yeah. but it, but that uh, that feels like a totally modern trailer. That basically is current trailer craft. Doesn't seem to have advanced much beyond 
and Blue Crush. Yeah. So it's somewhere in the 80s and 90s that they arrive at what feels like modern trailerese. I want to also credit the trailer. They help us when it's for a comedy and there's not one funny line in the trailer. Thanks. <laughs> Don't have to see the movie. Perfect. <laughs> and then there is the then there is the phenomenon of lines in the trailer that aren't in the movie. Couple f- or scenes in uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. He, they push the the scoundrels push an old lady off a bridge. Never happened in the movie. Famously in the mo- in the trailer for Major League, the line that ball wouldn't stay in some parks. Oh yeah, name one Yellowstone. Not in the movie. Although in some <laughs> television cut of the movie, I don't know why they have to pad it out. That's so interesting. It gets longer. That that is making me realize the great cinematic mystery of my childhood, which is I went and saw the movie Goonies as a kid, uh-huh. and it was like a little too old and scary for me. But the poster for for Goonies involves the whole chain of kids and whoever they are, the misfits who have to save the treasure, whatever the plot of that film is. They all seem to be like hanging down a cliff, like in a human chain, holding each other arm to foot which seems like a very perilous thing. And I think it transfixed me as like a six-year-old or however old I was when Goonies came out. And um, I don't think that ever happens in the movie. I do remember having to leave the movie for a few minutes because I was too scared. But I believe we later owned that VHS tape and I watched that film many times and that they never do that human chain. And I remember that was like my first my first experience with clickbait. I was like disappointed. I wanted that chain. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a boy who was made to do the truffle shuffle many a time against his will, I have put Goonies out of my mind. Steve and Mike, are there any film trailers that you would hold up as paragons of the form, making a difficult sell in an interesting way or uh, just enjoyable as sheer spectacle and bombast? Steve, what what have you got? Yeah, I'll give you one. So I think uh, around 79, Ridley Scott did something quite original, which is that he made a horror movie in space, Alien. That was a great trailer and a great film. But then he followed it up with Blade Runner, which if you think about it, is the follow-up movie, which was he took the noir genre and set it in the future instead of the 1940s and made it a futuristic sci-fi uh, uh, film mashup. Uh, and that trailer, I remember, was was just ravishing in, in exactly the way the film was. And um, it's funny, when Blade Runner first came out, it did not get a lot of love either from critics or from the audience, but I thought that trailer made me desperately want to see it. I was one of the relatively few who did and loved it at the time. It conveyed what was great about that film throughout, which is its atmosphere. A great trailer, and I think it was Kenneth Turan, it might be a different critic, put it, the trailer for the Sylvester Stallone movie Cliffhanger on his best movies of the year list. (laughs) Not the movie Cliffhanger. (laughs) Cliffhanger is a great trailer. But if you want to know uh, the ones that are, a trailer that's hitting all the requirements we say of giving you a taste but not delivering everything, but also packing a lot of iconography in there, Trailer for the Fugitive is a great trailer. It has... uh, I didn't kill my wife, I don't care, that back and forth moment. And it overlays with some other images when uh, Tommy Lee Jones talks about, I want to search every outhouse, hen house, cat house. (laughs) It's good. It's good. All right. I will go check that one out. Please come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and share your favorite movie trailers and whether you think the form is delightful or execrable. Guys, should we endorse? Let's do it. All right. Steve, you never get to start. What's your endorsement this week? I will kick it off. Um, I'm uh, endorsing a two-part essay on the N Plus One website, presumably also in the N Plus One magazine by George Blaustein, who is a uh, an academic, an American academic working at, uh, I believe, the major public university in Amsterdam. And he's observed up close and beautifully the transition to a kind of market model, a very Anglo-American phenomenon, taking an ancient and venerable institution and trying to make it somehow more relevant or financially viable by marketizing its uh, structure, which has been met with resistance by both faculty and students, as it sometimes is uh, in American Britain, where the, where, the, uh, where the trend is way more rampant than in con- uh, in con- on the continent. Um, but the account is, is, first of all, it is beautifully observed. Second of all, it is not at all polemical, to my mind. And third of all, we're all grappling with a very large abstraction called neoliberalism, right? Uh, a shift to um, basically a market paradigm and the attempt to put as many institutions on a market basis. And the abstraction often feels pervasive and ambient and so huge as to be indefinable. And people often lapse into not only polemic, but uh, hyperbole 
and um, and and generalizations that really gain no traction. And in fact, one of the things I think the free market right has been very canny about doing is saying, neoliberal, what do you mean neoliberalism? Define it. What is it even? And there's this attempt to sort of shrug their shoulders and say, it's sort of an organic or spontaneous shift in history that, you know, one can't account for, even though it inures massively to the benefit of a certain, you know, group of people. And what's wonderful about this piece is that it never, to the best of my memory, it never says the word neoliberalism in it. It's not interested in, in, in offering a left polemic or a set of generalizations. It's merely a beautifully observed kind of deep historical appreciation for what it means to take something that is venerable and, and great and cherished and make it conform to a kind of ideological fad in ways that, in fact, aren't actually profitable, right? They satisfy a certain ideological itch, but they don't actually make the institution more vital or more um, financially viable. And to me, that was an extraordinary achievement. It is beautifully written and beautifully observed. I cannot recommend it more highly. All right. Well, Steve took Blaustein. What have you got, Pesca? Yeah, I'm going to go a little less highbrow. Trailersfromhell.com is a fantastic <laughs> website where you see some of the old trailers, Exorcist 1, 2, and 3. There's a trailer for The Pink Angels, a forgotten grindhouse concoction, Pizza it's a flamboyantly gay biker gang against the straights. There's commentary on the trailers. There's the entire Warner archive of trailers. I found out about this because there was an episode of the Colin McEnroe show on WNPR. I think it's the uh, finest talk radio show going where he talked to the guys behind that website. And that was from July 2nd, 2014. We'll link to that. And if I may, just because I'm not on endorsing that much and I clearly lack for outlets for getting my opinion to the ears of Slate <laughs> listeners. There is a genre of YouTube video, slingshot videos. Now, do you know what the slingshot ride is at a carnival? Uh, yeah. You go up and then you go down. Yeah, it's really scary. And that's, that's all rides at a carnival. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Up and down or sometimes side to side. There's not a side to side variety. Uh, there's a lot of just uh, hurtling through the air and it is extremely scary. And most of these slingshot rides are now equipped with cameras. And famous people have been on the slingshot ride like the rapper DMX and he got freaked out. And there's a ton of videos, of course, that sometimes things happen to women's garments that makes these videos popular among a certain demographic. But the best video, if you Google girls freak out on a slingshot ride, these are like two 10-year-old girls freaking out on a slingshot ride. Tell my mama I love her. It's a great slingshot video. I think it is the ne plus ultra of the slingshot video genre. <laughs> All right. All right. Those sound like two very good endorsements. <laughs> Also, I appreciate your bowing to the local customs here and offering more than one endorsement. <laughs> I got to get so much in. <laughs> um, all right. I have an endorsement that is closer to Mike's than to Steve's, I think, in its browitude. Uh, but I might double it up with something that uh, tacks back in the other direction. So my husband possesses a poster. It was given to him by his aunt when he was a small boy. She said, what's your favorite movie of all time? And he said, you know what? I really just don't think anything's ever funnier than Naked Gun. Like, that's just a beautiful a piece of comedy. Choice. It's a yes. great movie. He did not know that the question was the prelude to a birthday gift, which was a film poster. Uh, and of course, the question, what is your favorite movie? And the question of what movie poster would you like to hang on your wall? These are two separate questions. But he ended up, uh, courtesy of his beloved aunt, with a poster of The Naked Gun, which now semi-proudly hangs in our house. So from memory, this is the airplane twisted in a knot. That no, is... The Naked Gun. Oh, The Naked Gun, I'm thinking Although about Although you're spoiling the future. Oh, yes. So, so The Naked Gun is Leslie Nielsen riding a bullet, and then there are headshots of the other bit characters within the film, including O.J. Simpson and the Dame and everybody else with like little funny taglines. So it is a, it is a classic of comedy. I would say not necessarily a classic of poster making. It's like phallic and a little bit graphically messy, but it proudly hangs in my house as a token of the deep love between my husband and his aunt. Um, however, the tragedy here is that one of the great schisms of my marriage is 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 the question, which movie is better, The Naked Gun, which is my husband's selection, or Airplane, which is my choice and is the other VHS tape that I owned as a child besides Goonies. It was literally just Airplane and Goonies back and forth for like about 10 years. And I really love Airplane. And not only is Airplane a great piece of comedy, it also has an extraordinary poster, which is, as you remembered, because it's so iconic, Mike, this airplane tied in a beautiful knot to think that we were just 
you know, moments away of having this this poster that I adore oh. for this film I adore hanging in my home. It's it's uh, too much to consider. However, I mention all this as a prelude to recommending the AV Club's oral history of the movie Airplane. Now, the oral history is a pretty shitty journalistic form at this point. <laughs> it's wildly overused and sometimes overused in an incredibly poor way. Like there was recently an oral history of the first season of Game of Thrones that included like four voices and left out the entire fact that they shot a pilot that was scrapped because it sucked and they had to bring in new people to build a whole new one like what's the point of doing an oral history if you don't actually care about the history and you only have like you're like we've got four voices it's oral it was oral (laughs) hey we interviewed people and we didn't bother to write a story Ah." you don't like it send a raven however this uh av club history of the movie airplane is um really satisfying if you're a fan of the film, a fan of uh, comedy cinema of that era, and it's just wonderful. Um, I'm also going to tack on to the end of this already long endorsement, but I'm going to take this as the host's prerogative. I don't know where I where I caught this from, but I'm going to try it. A bit of a log roll. My husband's aunt, beloved aunt and gifter of that poster, was the playwright Wendy Wasserstein, and a revival of her play The Heidi Chronicles is up on Broadway right now uh, with Elizabeth Moss in the starring role. And I had never seen or read the play until this production premiered, and I've now seen it twice since, and it's just wonderful. It's a really, really interesting document about feminism and a particular generation of feminism. As someone who's watched a lot of Mad Men, I found it really interesting to see Elizabeth Moss play a feminist who's like one generation forward from Peggy Olson. I just think it's a really fascinating document of a particular moment in the gender wars that feels both very current and very particular to the time when it was written in the late 80s. And I would recommend that you go see it. All right. That is a huge concatenation of endorsements. But now I'm done. Thank you so much, Pesca, for filling in today for Dana. Surely you can't be serious. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve, for uh, getting struck by lightning and conferring your host powers to me. Hopefully I did you some justice. Uh, you you wore the mantle with honor. I appreciate that. We'll do an oral history of this show fairly soon. Uh, the credits. Our producer, it's Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Steve Metcalf and Mike Pesca, I'm Julia Turner. That's right, Mike. Don't call me Shirley. And thank you so much for listening. We'll join you next week.